Good morning. Welcome to Parkway. My name is Jared Lawson. Let us pray, and then we will enter our teaching on prayer. Okay. The Lord is with us, already affecting the physical layout of the room. Okay, let me pray. Father, we love you. We pray that as we look to your scriptures and look to your heart on wanting to make us a people of prayer, that you would do that, that this would not just simply be another Christian discipline that we maybe get around to when our schedule's clear, but rather this would be our heart, our breath, that we would be a people of prayer, that we would know you, we would know your gospel, that we would know that you've made us your children and that we can cry out to you as our Father and that we would do that, that that would be the mark of who we are, not that we're just people who think rightly about things or get things correct, but rather we are people who know and love the sovereign King of the universe and cry out to him day and night. And as a result, we see incredible movements of God all over this church and this city and this country and this world as a result of our prayers. I pray that you would do that this morning as we look at prayer. Pray in your son's holy name. Amen. What is difficult to teach on prayer for several reasons, the main one being we all know we're supposed to pray. I would wager almost all of us don't pray either at all or as much as we should. We already feel guilty about how little we pray, and so a teaching on prayer could be nothing more than a guilt trip that leaves you uh, maybe praying for a day or two because of the weight of that guilt, but then guilt is a poor, poor, poor motivator to pray. So here from the beginning, I have no such motivation. I don't care about guilting you into praying more. Rather, as we look at prayer, let's assume God is who he says he is, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's the God that saves sinners, not just prayerless believers, rebels, sinners by nature, children of wrath. He's the God that goes after them. And as we see commands in the scriptures to be constant in prayer, be praying at all times in the spirit, continue steadfastly in prayer and pray without ceasing. As we see those commands, this call to be a people of prayer, we would banish moralistic guilt trip thoughts and rather know who our God is. And understand the truth of the gospel. He's the one that's brought us in and showers us with grace. And as a result of seeing who he is rightly, understanding who he's made us as his children, we would pray. Not because of guilt and moralism, but rather because of the glories of the gospel. That's my hope this morning, that as we look at prayer, we would pray from freedom. From the freedom of being his child and out of delight, not out of moralistic duty. I don't care about guilting you into this. But... Let's go. So why don't we pray? There's several, several reasons. I've just listed four. I think the first, one of the first main reasons we don't pray is just because of the day and age in which we live. We live, uh, I would argue, in the busiest time in history and in the most entertained slash distracted time in all of history. It doesn't matter if you're a mom or the CEO of a company, your to-do list is endless, And all of us are addicted to this phone that stays in our pocket that never goes away. We have things that aren't sin that we just love, shows, sports, you know, hobbies, whatever it may be. And we don't want to be legalists. And so we're not going to say, don't do this. It's not sin. And so we're not legalists, but we are prayerless 
because there is an endless list of things waiting for our attention and our time. I think our day and age is one reason we don't pray. Number two, I think, is just moralism. I think many of us, at best, view prayer as something we should do because it's a command. And so if we do it, we do it out of duty. You know, we're just obeying a command, you know, like a good soldier. And if we don't do it, we feel guilty because of our failure. And so when we try to do it again, we go to the place of prayer. And the first thing in our mind is how prayerless we've been. And so we start off with guilt. And so it's just this kind of downward spiral of guilt. We either do it and it's begrudging and it's a duty or we fail and we feel guilty. And so when we try again, we're aware of that failure. And so you're in this moralistic spiral. And therefore, we, at some point, we just say, I'm done with this. I'd rather, you know, go about my days not feeling guilty. Moralism is uh, a big reason, I think. Number three, sin, in particular, sin's corruption of your view of God. Most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, when we go close our eyes when we're alone, we picture a God who is distant, who is far off, who is not really focused on you, not really paying attention to you, and if he is, he's annoyed. Okay, what? Yeah, okay, you've got my attention, oh prayerless sinner. Go ahead and lob this up to me. May I remind you of how many times you've failed. We view God kind of like we're being called to the principal's office. He's very distant. He's far away. He's angry at our sin constantly. And so we don't really, we're not excited about praying to that God. We're not excited about going before this kind of guilt heaping God. Sin corrupts our view of who God is. And so we don't pray. And then lastly, the devil, the enemy. Uh, Put plainly, one of the main focuses of the enemy, if not the main focus, will be your prayer life. William uh, Grinnell, who is a, a Puritan who wrote basically the Puritan book on spiritual warfare, says this, Satan cannot deny but that great wonders have been wrought by prayer. As the spirit of prayer goes up, so his kingdom goes down. Satan's strategies against prayer are three. First, if he can, he will keep you from prayer. If that be not feasible, secondly, he will strive to interrupt you in prayer. He'll distract you. You'll think of a billion other to-do lists on your mind. Your mind will wander into a million other things. He'll distract you in prayer. Thirdly, if that plot takes not, he will labor to hinder the success of your prayers. The devil is very focused on ruining your prayer life. Uh, several years ago, I worked at a Bible school and it was in Australia and Kind of the religious landscape in Australia is a bit strange because it's Western, so there are churches, Christian churches everywhere, uh, things like that. But then it's also around a lot of the South Pacific, so you get a lot of New Age, uh, things like that. A lot of Satan worship, a lot of uh, occult presence and things like that. And this guy that I led uh, a school with gave a ride uh, to a uh, Satan-worshipping hitchhiker, an actual member of uh, the occult. And they began talking, this buddy of mine super evangelistic, and so... Hey, what do you do? Oh, I worship the devil. That's great. I'm a Christian. Uh, and actually, that's how the conversation went. And when he said that, uh, the Satan worshiper laughed. And my buddy said, you know, and I wear enemies or what's so funny. And the guy just very seriously said, if Christians knew the power of their prayers, they would never stop praying. Which I don't know why I said that, because it seems like you're kind of giving the other side some ammo. But he did say it. So again, Satan worshipers telling us this is how powerful your prayers are. If you knew, apparently as well as the devil knows, how powerful your prayers are, you would never stop praying. And so the devil goes after your prayer life. So these are reasons I think we don't 
pray. And what I want to do in this short teaching is, one, give us kind of, uh, saturate us with truth to fight against these lies. Look at who is the God that we pray to? Is he the principal that's angry with us or is he someone else? Show the centrality of prayer and that God's mission to redeem the world. How key is it in this thing we've been called to in Christianity and following Jesus? And then uh, I want to get very, very practical at the end and just give you uh, a bunch of different strategies, if you will, to just pray. Super practical, super on the ground. Pray like this, 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 this. So we're going to do that. Who is God? What is the, the nature of prayer? And then just practical strategies to pray. So first, who is the God that we pray to? Prayer is not unique to Christianity. Muslims pray, Hindus pray, Mormons pray. It's not unique to Christianity. What is unique to Christianity is the God that we pray to. So who is the God of Christianity? Who is the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is unbelievably concerned, focused on man. He made you in his image. You are not made like the fish that he fills the sea with or the birds that he fills the sky with or the beasts that he fills the land with. He scoops up dirt with his hands and molds man. He takes a rib with his hands and molds woman made in my image and then charges them, fill the earth, subdue it, rule as little kings representing the true king, made in his image, incredibly concerned for you, watches over you as a shepherd, guides you, protects you, leads you, restores you, provides for you. He hears your prayer. He is not Baal, far off, when we need to dance and scream and cut ourselves just to get some attention. First Peter 3, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. He knows what you need before you even ask, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6. He is not the one not paying attention to us most of the time, all the time, if we're honest. We're the ones not paying attention to him. We get it completely backwards. We go to him in prayer and imagine him far away, whereas he, our creator, our sustainer, the one giving you the next breath you're about to take is like, I'm the one that's, you're the one not focused on me. It's the other way around. He's constantly coming down, calling Abraham when Abraham doesn't know who he is, calling back Jacob when Jacob is only focused on his own life, calling Moses to go redeem his people when Moses is just a shepherd in Midian, stumbling upon the burning bush and God saying, go bring my people out, sending ultimately his son coming down to redeem people that are far off. He is more aware of you than anyone else in your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And on top of that, his character, what's his character? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, faithful love. That is the character of the God you pray to. And even in your prayerlessness, he makes a way. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for. And what does God do? Does he say, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. Why aren't you better? What does our gracious God do? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is not the distant, guilt-heaping, annoyed God we typically imagine when we go close our eyes 
in prayer, if you don't have the right character of God in your mind when you go to pray, you will not pray. I don't want to pray to a distant, far-off, unconcerned, guilt-heaping God. Luckily, that God doesn't exist. That's not the God of Christianity. You need to have God's character in your mind as you pray. Know who you're praying to. Secondly, not just his character, but this God is in absolute control of everything. You don't just pray to a good God, a perfect God. You pray to a God who is in control of absolutely everything. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He holds all things together, keeps us in being, which somehow this has become a typical struggle for prayer and for missions historically. People have, have asked, well, if God's in control of everything, does that mean I just, I just shouldn't pray? He's going to do what he wants to Anyway, and the great irony of that is in the scriptures and for most of church history, the motivator of prayer, the motivator of missions is the fact that God is in absolute control of everything. It's more of a reason to pray, not less. Look at Psalm 33, pick it up at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Why would you look to anything else to deliver you than the one who sits on his heavenly throne keeps everyone's heart beating? Why would you trust in false strength? That's a false hope of salvation. Why would you lift up a prayer to anyone else except the sovereign king of the universe? The sovereignty of God, God's control of absolutely everything is more of a motivation to pray, not less. John Piper, in his big book, he just wrote uh, on the providence of God on this whole subject of God's total providence, his control over everything, says this, prayer is one of the great wonders that God has given to the world, that God would plan for his own sovereign hand to be moved by the prayers of his creatures is amazing. God's providence does not make prayer a problem. It makes prayer powerful, or the Scottish pastor... Robert Murray McChain, oh, believing brethren, what an instrument this is which God has put into your hands. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. You pray not just to a nice God who's looking at you. You pray to the one who is in control of absolutely everything, which makes your prayers unthinkably powerful and unthinkably important. We pray to the God who's in control of everything. More than that, we pray to a God who only, only, only gives us exactly what is best for us. He's not just infinitely good or infinitely in control of everything. He only gives us the answer to our prayer that is best for us, that is 
for our good. When we pray, we see limited, we see dimly. He does not. He sees perfectly. And there are times where we literally cannot fathom. I don't understand how the answer no to this prayer could be good, whether it's a child dying or something like that. I I don't understand how you can be in the midst of this, yet it seems like your answer is no. There will be times in this life you won't understand, but you will one day. When you see him face to face, you will hear his promise and understand Romans 8, 26, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There will be things you don't understand. I don't get how his answer here of no or whatever may be right, but you will one day. Tim Keller, uh, in his book on prayer, great book, says, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you would want them to be answered if you knew everything he knew, which is why you need to have his character in your mind. There will be a time where in all of your wisdom, you can't fathom how he could be good and giving this answer. And in those moments you say, but you are infinitely good and I am not, and I trust you. And you'll show me one day, I'll see, a, I see dimly now, you'll show me one day. And his character is what you hold on to in those moments. So you pray to a good God, a God who's aware of you, a God who is in control of absolutely everything, and a God who makes your prayers unable to fail because no matter what you pray, he gives you the answer that you will one day be infinitely joyful that he gave you. And then lastly, perhaps most importantly, you pray to God, the God of the universe, as his adopted child. You don't just pray to a God that likes you. You pray to your father who has sent his eternal son to adopt you, to bring you into his family. And so when the eternal God looks at you, he sees his son. And you pray with the same boldness that Jesus prays with. He sees his child. You pray in the name of Jesus. And we sign off all of our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been brought into Christ. You pray as boldly as Jesus prays because you are his child. He has made you his child. What an unthinkable, unbelievable reality. You approach God confidently, not even as Moses approaches him confidently. I know Israel's sinful and you like me. I'm Moses. I'm the one obeying you. We approach him even more boldly. The veil has been torn. We sprint into God's arms as our loving father. Oswald Chambers says this, don't pray according to your moods, but resolutely launch out on God and say, our Father, and before you know where you are, you were in a larger room. You want to banish all thoughts of a merciless, guilt-tripping, faraway, distant God. Say the two words that Jesus tells us to pray, our Father, and you will find yourself in a much larger room. You're not a sinner before a holy God who's angry at your sin. You're in a room with a merciful Father who knows you, who knows your sin far more better, far better than you do, says, that's why I sent my son. That's the whole point of the gospel, to bring you in. You pray to your adopted father, Jesus, the eternal son, who knows God the Father better than anybody. He spent eternity in beautiful, loving fellowship with him constantly over and over and over and over again is pointing us to this reality. Again, the Lord's Prayer, disciples say, teach us to pray. Pray like this, our Father First two words, orient yourself to the reality that he's brought you into his family. If your father feeds birds 
and clothes flowers, how much more will he answer your prayers? He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Jesus over and over again trying to get this in our minds of who God is. Martin Luther says this. Jesus knows that we are timid and shy that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and that we are so tiny that we do not dare pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts to remove all doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Jesus, again, is saying, you want to know what your father wants you to pray like? Luke 18, God wants you to annoy him with your prayers, tells the story of uh, the unjust judge who fears neither God nor man, but this widow keeps coming to him and saying, give me justice. And finally, this unjust judge says, just to get her to leave me alone, I'll say yes, right? She gets what she wants because she annoys him to death. And Jesus says, how much more will God give justice to his elect, to his kids, his people? Annoy him with your prayers. I've got uh, two talking kids now. And Dada, dada, dada is annoying. And sinful dads say, please just shut that mouth, that beautiful little mouth surrounded by those cheeks, just silence. Your father doesn't say that. He says more. You're not saying enough. Say more. Jesus telling us over and over again, this is who your father is. He wants you to go to him in your darkest moments. He's the God of all comforts, 2 Corinthians one. He wants you not just to go to him with requests. He wants you to commune with him in prayer. Jesus, go to your father who is in secret, something we see him do over and over and over again, sneaking away from the need to get alone with his father. Get alone with your father. Let him fill every chamber of your heart with love, with the realities of the gospel. Make prayers like Psalm 4, 7, the cry of your heart as you get alone with God. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will lay down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Get alone with your Father and let the duty of prayer become a delight. Commune with him in prayer. He's your Father. He's made you his child. We don't just pray to a powerful God. We don't just pray to a powerfully good God. We pray to our Father. And if he who did not spare his son but gave, himself, or gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Go pray to your father. That's who you pray to. Banish the thought of the distant, unconcerned, unaware, guilt-tripping God who doesn't exist, by the way. That's all in your head. Or it's a lie you've been listening to. And look to your eternally good, perfect powerful, in control of everything, giving you the answer that you will one day rejoice that he gives you, Father. That's who you pray to. Now, what is the role that that God has put prayer in? As you've been brought into his kingdom and told to pray, is it just a good religious duty that God thought was a good idea? Or is it something far bigger? Look at this. Let's just take a brief sketch of how prayer relates to the mission of God to redeem the world uh, first and foremost, we see God has made Christians, God has made his people to be a people of prayer. 
In Acts 6, the book of Acts is, is the spreading of the church. Jesus uh, pays the penalty for our death, is raised as the conqueror of sin, death, and the devil, ascends to the right hand of the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, and the church begins and spreads across the known world. That's what the book of Acts is. And in Acts 6, right at the beginning, as Peter and John have preached a couple sermons and thousands have come into the kingdom, widows are being neglected in the food distribution. They're giving out food. Uh, meeting needs that are there, and widows are being neglected, something that we would say, that's, a serious, that's not nothing. People who have no other means of provision aren't getting provided for by the church, and this gets brought before the apostles, and they simply say, that's a, that is a need, yes, let's establish essentially deacons, where we get Stephen and some of the other guys to go meet the need, but we, the apostles, right, the, the founders of the church, Peter, James, John, I mean, the, the, the apostles, what do they say? We must devote ourselves to two things, Preaching of the word, which all of us Protestants would say, that's right. That's why we do sermons. That's why we expository preaching, the authority of the Bible, right? The word is absolutely central to our faith. And what's the other thing? Prayer. Which, if we're honest, I would think if there was a big need here of people not getting fed, and I gave you the answer of, I need to spend more time praying, you would probably say, what are you talking about? There's needs happening here. I would imagine And I imagine that's because we've taken prayer far down the list of where the founders of the church would have it. Devote ourselves to prayer and the teaching of the word. The apostles telling churches to be people of prayer. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, be praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Notice, prayer is not something Christians just do. It's meant to be our very breath. Be constant in prayer without ceasing. It's meant to give us this pressing of, how are we going to do anything else? That's the starting point. That's not what it means. Is you don't ever do anything else. Don't eat or sleep because you're constantly praying. But it's meant to be our very breath. Not even food. Not even like food. You know, Eat three meals a day. If you don't eat it, things are going to go bad. It's breathing. If you stop doing this, death enters in, decay enters in. We're meant to be a people of prayer. Thirdly, we're brought into, we're not just passively saved. Good, your eternity's in check. Now just, you know, live a good moral life. We have been brought into a cosmic war between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. Ephesians 6, finally, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's who we wrestle with. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Take up the whole armor of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You've been brought into the kingdom of God and the tool, the weapon you've been given to fight this cosmic war is prayer. Prayer to the infinite God who holds the universe together. We are meant to be a people of prayer. It's meant to be our breath. We're meant to do all things by prayer, that's who he's created us to be. And if you just gave a quick survey, I have some verses there that aren't exhaustive. If you did a quick survey of Acts, you would see almost every big movement of God 
is preceded by his praying people. Even the falling of, of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and Acts 1, we see they're together constantly praying. We see these daily conversions as we see that, that, that phrase, God added to their number day by day, that's preceded by a praying people, boldness to keep preaching the gospel. They're praying and the spirit fills the room. They're filled with boldness. We see the first Gentiles brought into the kingdom because Cornelius was praying. The angel of the Lord specifically says, I have heard your prayers and that's why I'm coming to you. Peter is released from prison because women were praying in a home. Paul and Barnabas are sent out on missionary journeys because the church of Antioch was together praying and the spirit moves in their hearts to send out Paul to go all over the world. Churches are planted throughout the known world because of prayer. Uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi in, in the prison praying and singing hymns and an earthquake frees them over and over and over and over again. Prayer in an unbelievable movement of God throughout the book of Acts that you could keep tracing throughout church history. The great awakenings, so many of the great revivals all begin with praying people, praying churches, and praying pastors, sometimes for decades before God raises up a George Whitfield to pray and thousands come in. There was, uh, no one really knows this except people in Charlotte, there was a group of uh, a church that dedicated itself to pray that God would raise up someone from Charlotte, North Carolina, where they were, to evangelize the entire world. Ten years later, Billy Graham was born. We see this over and over and over again. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastors in the history of the church, certainly the most famous of his day, the biggest church of his day. His written sermons were converting thousands every single week. And he was interviewed one time and said, what's the secret, you know, what's the, you know, secret to your success? And he gave one answer, not multiple, one. My people pray for me. My people pray for me. And he wasn't giving lip service. He actually believed that. You can look at all this, success, whatever, and chalk it up to, oh, a skilled order or a, a, a skilled writer or whatever. That's not actually what's happening. My people pray for me, and God is pouring out his rich blessing. If you see prayer as just this kind of moralistic duty that we're supposed to do, we've really misunderstood really the nature of Christianity, what you've been brought into in following a Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me. You've misunderstood the, the role that pray, prayer is meant to be our very breath, a people of prayer, the weapon we use against the cosmic forces of darkness that we war against. That's the unbelievably central, important role prayer plays in my life and in your life and in the life of the Parkway Church in McKinney, warring against the dominion of darkness. So, is everybody okay? I don't know if I feel like... Is this shaming? I hope it's not shaming. I'm not trying to be shaming. That's who you pray to, a merciful and a great God. That is the importance of prayer. If you feel conviction, the Lord's conviction is sweet. It doesn't say, yeah, you're horrible at this. It's come. Yes, of course you haven't been praying as much as you are. You're a sinner. You live in a fallen world. Come, pray more. The Lord has made a way. The Spirit intercedes for us in our prayerlessness. So now what I want to do with the remaining time is just give us a billion, six, uh, how-tos, Shouldn't exaggerate when I literally have them numbered. Uh, six how-tos of just praying. And these are super open-ended. These are where I found help. I've even plucked some of these from other pastors that I've listened to and thought were really helpful. I just want to remove the, okay, where do I start question. Because again, if it is true, what everyone has, has said throughout church history, that the devil goes after your prayers, 
You're not just going to, oh, that was a great talk. Let me float into my prayer room and sit, and I will be in the third heaven communing with my Lord. The devil's going to come after this. Your sinful nature will rear its head against it. You'll be hungry right when you're about to pray. Conveniently, every time I just ate, somehow I'm, oh, I need to return that text. I mean, your, 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 your mind will be flooded with things to do. And so I want to put things around us just to help us grab onto something, real practical stuff. Uh, these are no particular order. And again, you've been uniquely wired by the Lord. And so I don't want you to just say, okay, how does this person pray? I should do that or I'm failing the Lord's going to, you know, someone might pray two hours, someone might pray, you know, 30 minutes. I'm, these are open-ended. So first one, pray alone and pray together. First, pray alone. I think this is, in my opinion, the, the core of, of what it means to, for you to have fellowship with your God, getting alone with him in prayer. If you never pray alone, I don't know that you understand that fellowship that you've been brought into. If you only speak to your spouse or your parents at a family reunion, you know, you're with others and you're like, oh, hey, I forgot you were here. What's up? I don't think you have a great relationship with that person. And similarly, if you only pray when you're with others at, you know, night of worship and prayer or whatever, I think there's something you've, again, misunderstood about what it means to commune with your father. Again, Jesus constantly going away, getting alone. There's people that need to be healed and what does he do? He, he leaves. The disciples show up and say, where did you go? Did you not know there's a billion people that need to be healed and everyone is looking for you? But he leaves to get alone with his father, sends the disciples ahead on the boat. Why? To go be alone with his father, to get alone with God. And in the Garden of Eden, I mean, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, much worse garden, before he's about to go to the cross, what is he going to get alone with his father, pouring out his heart to him. That's our example. Again, he says this in Matthew 6. This should be a mark of our lives. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Go get alone with your God and pray to him. This should be a mark of your life, but that's not it. Pray together. If you never pray together, I don't think you understand the nature of the church. This is a normal mark of the life of the church. Acts 2, 42, the summary statement Luke's giving us, what is the early church like, says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. They devoted themselves to pray. There is such benefit in praying with others. My own prayer life has been helped so much by praying with others, seeing them pour their hearts out to God, learning from them, being encouraged by them. There's such benefit in praying with others. You could do that. You could text six close friends, three close friends, people in your community group, and just say, for the next six months, Let's get together every other week, every week in the morning, whatever, before work, and let's just pray, 30 minutes. I'll have coffee ready. Y'all come over. It's on your way to work. Just do that. Pray together. So pray alone. Pray together. Number two, pray short prayers and pray long prayers. Short prayers are good and okay. It's a good thing to pray quick five-second prayers throughout the day. It is a cultural norm for us to say, I'll be praying for you. 
It is not a cultural norm to actually pray for them after we say, I'll be praying for you. You could do that for four seconds. God, yeah, heal them. I know they're going to the hospital. Please heal them. You can do that in your head just real quick. Don't ever send praying without, you know, press the send and then actually pray. It'll take you six seconds. Pray short prayers. Those are good, but not enough. I text uh, Claudia, my wife, every day. I love you. Kissy face emoji, you know. Winky face emoji, winky kissy face emoji, send. Short, you know, if that's all I did, if I didn't talk to her when I came home, if I just, you know, went home, played with the kids, did the dishes, went to bed, like major problems in your marriage. If you only have short prayers with the Father, it's the same thing. It's good, not enough. Pray long prayers. You need to have regular times of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I know your eyes are widening. That's normal in church history. We'll read a quote here in a little bit of a guy saying, you know, I used to pray an hour and was distracted the whole time. And then, you know, like an hour, pray three minutes, I'm distracted. I'm like, guess the spirit's not moving. I guess I'll move on to Bible reading, right? You could pray long prayers. Get alone with God. Pour your heart out to him. Thank him for his salvation. Thank him for who he is, that he is your father. And then lay your petitions before him. You will need to grow at this, and that's fine. You will need to grow into longer prayers, and that's the point of Christianity, sanctification growing by God's grace. Number three, pray both unstructured and structured prayers. We talk about the content of your prayers here. Pray unstructured prayer. Just, just This is probably what we think of as prayer, pouring out your heart to God. Father, I have this situation at work. I don't know how to fix this I don't know if it's me and just my constant frustration, but I'm hitting this and I need these things to move and you're the one that's sovereign. Just help me move here. I want to be faithful and blah, blah, blah. Just pour out your heart to God. You know, my my kids, Lord, I... They're, they're crazy, and I don't know if it's I'm just super impatient. I don't want to wound them with just my anger. I'm, I won't be frustrated, but change their hearts. Make them love you. Make them know you, and give me just patience and wisdom. I pray they would have a testimony that their father wasn't a hindrance to them seeing your fatherly heart. Just pour out your heart to God. You know what's going on in your life. Take that to him and just lay your heart open. Go to him and thank him for his salvation. Thank him that he saved you. Just pour your heart out to him, unscripted, just... Uh, prayers to your Lord. Secondly, structured prayers. What I mean by this is putting things in place, things that we in kind of low church evangelical circles frown upon as Catholic or ritualistic or whatever, putting things in place to help you, one, pray more effectively, for lack of a better term, pray more deeply, things to help you pray. Number one, we'll talk about this more in a second, so I'll just comment out now, the Bible. We'll have a whole section at the end about Praying the Bible. Pray the Bible. Number two, the prayers of church history. Get the Valley of Vision or something like that, these, these, this prayer book of the Puritans, and you'll be reading someone else's prayer and just pray before. God, I, I, I'm reading this. John Bunyan prayed this 500 years ago. Just hear this as my prayer, Father. And as you read, not only will you be praying deep, rich prayers, but you'll be learning. Okay, I, I, I didn't think about his goodness here, and I can, it'll take you deeper. Number three, have just a bunch of practical lists. People uh, that you need to pray for, their needs, keep them on note cards, keep them on your phone, you know, use your phone for good rather than evil for once. And that, you know, just people to pray for, people in your community group, just have a, you know, a concentric circles you work out from. Pray for you, your family, your church, your, you know, just your, your country, your, your world. I don't know, just 
have something every day, all these practical things of keeping you praying, praying for good things. Yes, of course, there's a danger of it becoming ritualistic or mechanical, but that danger is uh, not worth not doing it. Okay, don't reject something just because you could possibly fall into legalism or something like that. So unstructured prayers, if you only pray unstructured prayers, you'll probably get shallow. It'll probably be based off your emotions for lack of, or, or, or over, over time. If you're not feeling ready to pour out your heart to God, you just won't pray. And then structured prayers, if you only have structured prayers, it probably will get mechanical. You should probably have both. Number four, spontaneous and scheduled prayers. This is now when you pray. Uh, spontaneous prayers, there's a way of which, in the same way you have your favorite meal and what's your reaction that you can't really help. It's just, ah, or, mm, or whatever. Let prayer be that reaction to every situation you face in your life. Just spontaneous prayer. There's been times in elder meetings, it happens often because our elders are godly, thankfully, uh, where you know, we'll just be looking at God's blessing and someone will say, can we just stop this meeting and pray? You know, it's not on the agenda to pray after looking at this, but just to say, God, I thank you. This church, you've sustained it for so long, and you're just, for whatever reason, pouring out your blessing here. We pray just a spontaneous prayer. Pray spontaneous prayers, a crisis, thanksgiving, whatever bubbles up in your heart. Just pray spontaneous prayers. But if this is all you have, again, it will probably fade. Again, it will be probably based just on emotions you need scheduled prayer. Decide right now, am I a morning person? Am I a night owl? And then whatever the answer is, budget 30 minutes to pray. I'm a morning person, cool. I'm waking up 30 minutes, praying. I'm going to read a psalm and I'm going to pray. Night person, I fall into my bed at nighttime. I barely make it past nine, okay? So if I don't return your text at 840, it's because my eyes are slowly shutting, okay? That's why. But I'm a morning person. That's where I put it. You need scheduled prayers. Again, don't listen to the devil's lie that this will turn legalistic. Schedule your prayers. John Wesley, there's a famous story where he was having dinner with kind of a celebrity of his day uh, who was a famous author, and he said, oh, it's, I got to go. I've got an appointment in the morning. And the celebrity author said, okay, tomorrow? When? He said, yeah, 4 a.m. Like, what? You have a meeting at 4 in the morning? Yeah, I mean, every morning. That's how John Wesley talked. Yeah, every morning. Uh, and the guy said, with who? He said, with God. Right? I'm sure if we were at a fun dinner party, you could pray in the morning. I'll move that. You know, what's another day of prayerlessness? It's not Wesley's attitude. I've got to pray in the morning, so I've got to go to bed early so I'm not dead in the morning. You need scheduled prayer. Number five, pray desperately and pray, pray delighted prayers. When you think of the state of the world, the depth of sin, uh, whatever crisis our world is facing, pray desperately. Father, change this heart. You're the only one that can. When you think of your neighbor down the street or your child or your sibling who isn't saved, Lord, I can't reason with them enough. I don't have the right arguments to make them a new creation. Only you can do that. Please change their heart. Pray desperate prayers. Ask him desperately even for your own heart, for joy. If you feel joyless, go to him and say, Father, I... I don't care. If I'm being honest, I don't care about praying. I don't care about reading your Bible. I do it because I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to be like this. Just change my affections over and over again in your scriptures. Paul talks about us rewiring. You're rewiring our hearts to love you more and be filled with the fullness of God. I want that. I want to desire you more than even good things. I want the best thing. Do that in my heart. I can't just make my heart change. Just pour that out before him. Pray desperately for your own heart and then just pray 
delighted prayers. Remind yourself of the gospel every morning. Thank you, Father, that I wanted nothing to do with you. I didn't care about you, and yet you overwhelmed my evil will and saved me and brought me in, gave me this internal inheritance of knowing you. Pray delighted prayers. Lastly, pray silent, spoken, and written prayers. You can pray in your head. God hears that. Pray out loud with your mouth, obviously. Uh, that's what we all think of as prayer. And then write your prayers. Uh, I'm a horrible journaler. I have 19 journals that are three pages filled and however many other pages are left in the journal, empty. But sometimes, just in my darkest time, for whatever reason, I, I write out my prayers and I'm almost always blown away by just how helpful it is. Write your prayers to the Lord. Do whatever, just to get yourself praying. Three warnings, and then we'll talk about praying the Bible with the time we have left. First warning, you will have to fight for this. This will not come easy. You will not go floating into the prayer closet. Every morning when I pray, Joe is screaming in the other room. So I put earmuffs on. I used to go get her, oh, are you okay? And then she's like, go, you know, and she wants out. She's lying. The little one-year-old devious heart just wants me to get her. So I close my ears and I pray. You know, you'll never have a perfect situation. Uh, Susan Wesley, John and Charles Wesley's mom, had 16 kids. I know Parkway is close, but not that much. 16, she's busier than me and she's busier than you. And what she would do is she would go and put her apron over her head and make a little tent and pray. And she discipled her kids, if you disturb mom mid-prayer, spanking, okay? I got to be with the Lord. She just carved out a time. You will have to fight for this. Set yourself up for a success. Think, okay, I'm going to wait. But before you go to bed, think, I'm going to wake up and that's where I'm going to pray. Okay, I'm going to wake up. I'll lay my clothes out here so I don't have to get them out of the drawer. Uh, I'll have the coffee ready, preset that. So just close draw coffee, and then got my Bible here with pencil on it. I don't have to go zip and find where the pencil, it just, I'm serious. There's times you're like, oh, I got to make the coffee. What time is it? 20 more minutes. Man, I'm going to crank out so many more tasks at work if I just get 20 more minutes, and you'll go to bed. Set yourself up for a success. Turn your phone off. Have it in the other room. Have it on silent, whatever. Have the Bible app to be the first app that you read in the morning. Don't check Twitter or anything like that when your mind is fresh, waiting for a new day. Two, don't judge by experience. If you do, you will not pray, I promise. There are times when God will pour out his love for you when you're praying. There's been times where I've, more tears have come out of my eyes than words out of my mouth because God just feels so near and he's just been, he just blesses me that morning. There's other times, more than I would like, where he feels a billion miles away and I feel foolish praying. It does feel like I'm just talking to no one. I'm filling the room with air. And if you judge by your experience, you will not pray. Don't judge prayer by your experience or your feelings or your moods. Judge it by who God is, the centrality, what, what he says about prayer, what prayer does. You've got to keep his truth and character in your mind when you pray. And number three, simply don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God does not expect perfection from anybody else except his son, which gospel. I mean, how many times do we have to say this? The whole point is not we're so awesome. The whole point is that he's awesome on our behalf, and by his life we might grow. The spirit might empower us by, by his grace to grow more and more and more. Don't go try and pray five hours tomorrow and be like, oh, I guess I'm bad at this, and stop praying. Let the Lord minister to your heart and grow. Lastly, 
praying the Bible. I pulled this out so it could be its own section. Uh, I'm speaking from experience, so this isn't authoritative. I would think that the thing that would transform your prayer life the quickest instantly would be doing this, would be praying the Bible. George Muller, uh, who prayed, honestly, probably more than anyone, uh, if you know who George Muller is, says this about his prayer life before he prayed the Bible and after he prayed the Bible. The, the difference then, before I prayed the Bible, uh, between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible, and generally I spent all my time till breakfast in prayer. But what was the result? I often spent a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even an hour on my knees before being conscious, uh, conscious to myself of having derived comfort or encouragement or humbling of the soul, etc., often having suffered much from the wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or quarter of an hour or even half an hour, I only then really began to pray. So again, half an hour, he would just struggle through a wandering mind and then keep praying. Then, let's see, I lost my place. Uh, I scarcely ever suffer this way or now in this way, now that he prays the Bible. For my heart began being nourished by the truth, being brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. It often astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. Difference between not praying the Bible and praying the Bible. So how do we pray the Bible? Uh, quickly, I'll run through these. Learn from the people that pray in the Bible. You have prayers of Moses, of Daniel, of the prophets, of Paul, of Peter, of Jesus. How do they pray? Do they, do they exalt God's character first? Do they thank him for past deliverances before they ask for this deliverance? Do that. Thank you that you're my father. Thank you that you've saved me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. You see that. Structure your prayers like Jesus prays, like Paul prays. Pray the Bible. Secondly, you can pray Paul's prayers. So many of the epistles have Paul's prayers, you know, a section of Paul's prayers, and you could read and do that. I have a bunch of them listed out here. Read Colossians 1, and as you read over one of Paul's prayers, you pray that for Parkway. Pray that for the people that sit on your row. Pray that for your friends. Pray that for your community group. Pray the prayers of the scriptures. Read a chapter of Philippians, and then just pray the truth that's flooded into your heart as a result of it. And then lastly, pray the Psalms. And Donald Whitney has an excellent book called Praying the Bible, just a short 95-page book that I would recommend to all of you. The Psalms are the Bible's prayer book. That's not something cute we say. That is true. God has given you 150 perfect, inspired, authoritative prayers for you to read, learn from, and pray back to him. So my suggestion is start here. 150 Psalms, we'll talk in 150 days. If it was no good, then we'll, we'll try something else. But just try this. Pray through the 150 Psalms. You probably have to break down Psalm 119 into more than just one time. But pray this. You're not doing interpretation. There's not a test after this. Really, the point is just let your heart, like George Miller said, be flooded with truth. Let the Spirit orient you towards the truth of God. And then just let thing, him bring things into your mind. Okay? When David is talking about God obliterating his enemies, I pray that he would obliterate the devil because I know we don't wrestle with flesh and blood anymore. And so you can do that. I mean, you don't have to exactly, uh, he says, bash babies' heads against the rock. I mean, if I want to be true to the text and interpret this, you don't have to, you know, do that. Just let his truth fill your heart. So I want to do this, and we're running a little long, but I just want to do this with Psalm 1 real quick. So look down. I have that there for you. 
And this is, this is just an example of what I mean. This could be five minutes. This could be 50 minutes. There's sometimes three verses takes me 50 minutes. Sometimes 16 verses takes me 10. Okay, so just you let the Spirit lead. So look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. Father, I don't want to be a man who walks with sinners, and I don't want to scoff. Watch my mouth, Father, as I see so many things that I just think are so foolish, things in the world, things from politicians, things from other pastors, things from Christians, and I just scoff. What, what a bitter heart I have. Change that, Father. I pray that my mouth wouldn't uh, let forth scoffing, but would let forth prayer. Pray for my enemies. That I would be the man Jesus called me to be, and I'd be a man who flees, not from sinners, but from sin that might turn my eyes away from you. Verse 2, his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Father, I want to love your word more. I want to love it more, though I read it all the time. I preach it all the time. I want to love it more. I want to meditate on it day and night. I have trouble memorizing. It's hard to get things in my head. It seems more like a task rather than something that my heart rejoices and change my heart. I want to love your word more. I want to be excited to get up and read it in the morning. I don't just want to, let's see if I succeed in this year's Bible reading plan. I want to love your word with the passion of this man from Psalm 1. Do that in my heart. You see that. I won't go through the rest, but you see that. Just read, let it flow, and then you know you. Just pray the Psalms back to God. Let the Psalms guide you. Let God's prayer book that he's given to each and every one of us guide us. Last thing, and then uh, Jeff can come up for questions. Billy Graham, uh, statistically the most successful Christian minister ever. I mean, as far as number of conversions, number of people preached to, he is the most seen human being on television. That's an actual stat. Uh, he's, he's been seen more than any other human being. He was interviewed at the end of his life and asked, is there anything you would do differently? And the lady asking him kind of jokingly said, and without a second's hesitation, he said, I would have prayed more. I would have prayed more. The most successful man you could imagine, the most successful numbers-wise Christian, I would have prayed more. I would have gotten alone with my father and told him how much I loved him. That's his exact quote. I would have prayed more, and the lady was very confused and didn't really know what to say after that, but that was his answer. So may we follow his advice. May we be a people of prayer and where we're prayerless like the disciples. The only thing they ever ask Jesus to teach them, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's just ask, let that be your first prayer. Teach me to pray, Lord. I'm, I'm prayerless. So let's pray, and then Jeff will come up for questions. Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray. Even uh, the thinking about this, I think, you know, you could write measuring sticks by quantity time, but quantity time doesn't mean anything. Jesus says the Pharisees prayed big, long prayers, and that was clearly for their own glory. Father, we just want to know you and love you and go to you and commune with you as our Father and pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and people would glorify your name. We want that to be something your spirit does in our hearts. We can't do that if we try. It's just morals and it's just duty. It's not a delight. Only you can rewire us. And I pray that you would make us a people of prayer. That would be the mark of our life above all else, that we are a people of prayer. And that as a result, we see you just doing incredible things that make us pray more and make us delight in you more and glorify you more. We pray that in your son's name. Amen.